Yes, so as has been spoken, we are starting a series on worship today. Um, and just to, just to kind of set a, a guideline, um, all of our lives are called to be worship. Every single part, not just why we're, we're in this, this building and in this space for this, this amount of time, but all of our lives are to be an act of worship, an act of response to who God is. Um, but for this series, we will specifically be focusing on what we do when we come together to worship as God's people in this specific time and in this specific space. So I don't want you to think that I'm saying this is, this is the only time we worship. It's just this is what we're going to be focusing on um, so hopefully that makes sense to everybody. Worship is bigger than what happens here on Sunday morning, but this is what we're going to be focusing our time on. Okay, let us turn to God in prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can come into your presence this morning as your people to worship you. Thank you that part of this worship involves hearing your word read and proclaimed. God, as people coming out of a Reformed tradition, we know that this is one of the central, the central piece of our worship is hearing your word and hearing it proclaimed. So God, we pray now that you would be with us, Lord, because we know that without your Holy Spirit, these words are dead words. Our ears are stopped up, our hearts are hard. Our minds are dull. Lord, we need your spirit to enliven us so that these words may become alive, they may penetrate to the deepest parts of who we are, that they might change us. God, help us now as we look at what it means to worship you together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So this first week, we're looking at worship as being gospel-centered. And to do that, we're turning to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Isaiah's vision. And the way this is going to work, I invite you, um, if you have a Bible, just to keep it open, or if you have a, uh, what are those things? Phone, if you have a phone. Yeah, there you go, phone. Um, This might be a rough sermon. (laughs) If you have that, to keep it out. Uh, If you're you're scrolling through your Bible, we're going to walk through the passage. But first, we'll read it all the way through. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear now God's word for us. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Why, why do I come to corporate worship every Sunday? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What motivates me? What motivates you to get out of bed every Sunday? You give up whatever it is, whatever else you could be doing in order to come here into this place. And when you get here, what is it that we are actually doing? Is this a, a social club? Is it a self-help group, like a, almost like a 12-step meeting? Is this a, a music sing-along time? Maybe is this a concert? Is this a volunteer hub? Is this a, a lecture, a lecture hall? Is this a Sunday daycare? You come here for a, a good feeling? Do we come here for an emotional high? Maybe it's been so long that it's just been marked on your calendar that you've forgotten the, the reason that you come here. Maybe more, it's just a habit now. What happens during this, this hour and 15 minutes of worship? The former president of Covenant Theological Seminary, Mark Dalby, he says, corporate worship. Corporate worship is nothing more and nothing less than a representation of the gospel in the presence of God and his people, for his glory and for their good. Corporate worship is nothing more and nothing less than a representation of the gospel. And that happens in the presence of God and in the presence of God's people, and it's for God's glory and for the good of God's people. Worship is gospel-centered. It is a representation of this gospel message. So for all of the things that happen here on Sunday morning, the major focus of what we are doing is we are representing, we are retelling, we are reliving the gospel message, the message of God's salvation for us. And to get to uh, this question of what is the gospel, we are going to turn to our passage. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through it. This is a foundational passage uh, as it instructs us, as it instructs God's people into worship. What is worship? What is going on in this time of worship? So if you have it, go ahead and take it out. Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read right now the first three verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What we see here from the start of our passage is that worship begins 
with God. The gospel message begins with God. It does not start with us. It starts and is focused on God. And what we do here every morning, we come, every Sunday morning, we come to be reoriented to who God truly is. Not to who we've imagined God to be. Not to who uh, culture tells us that God is. Not to who we've made God out to be um, or who we've imagined him to be. But we come to be instructed in who God really is as he reveals himself to us in his word. And this is what we see Isaiah doing in the first part of his vision. I saw the Lord high and exalted. We see the Lord, or the Sovereign One, as he is called Adonai, and he is seated on a throne, high and exalted. Now, who sits on thrones? Royalty sits on thrones, kings and queens, those to whom we submit. Isaiah is looking at the one true king, the one true sovereign. And this king is high and exalted above every other king, above every other ruler. This is the one to whom everyone else bows down in heaven and on earth, high and exalted. And not only is this king high and exalted, this king is immense. We read that the train of his robe filled the temple. This is an imposing presence. This is a magnificent presence. And this is the only description that we get, though. The description ends really at feet level. We picture, or maybe we imagine that Isaiah is prostrated. He is laid before the Lord, and all he is willing to do is look up and gaze at just the feet, at just the lower level, and what he sees is the train of the robe, the hem of the garment is filling the entire temple. We get the feeling that words can't describe the vision that Isaiah is seeing. It's it's too much for Isaiah to be able to put into words. Looking upon this king in all of his splendor and all of his majesty is too much for Isaiah to be able to to communicate. He is high and exalted. He is immense. And the the angels, these, these seraphim, these strange creatures, these curious creatures that are flying above the Lord, well, they're, they're, they're communicating the same thing because with two of their wings, they are covering their faces as if to say, we, we too are as beautiful, angelic creatures. We are not worthy to gaze upon the sovereign one, the holy one, the majestic one. With two of their other wings, they are covering up their feet as if to communicate Not only are we unworthy to look upon the king, we are unworthy to be seen by the king. This is too much for us. And what is going on is they are calling out back and forth. They are calling out, responding, singing to each other, a holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
This king is high and exalted. This king is immense. This king is indescribable. And now we see that this king is completely holy. This repetition of this three times holy, this is the, the, the way that the Hebrew language uh, gives the strongest use of the superlative. In this, in this language, it is saying this is the holy one. This is the definition of holiness. Has anybody here heard of the, the, the term that we use now, a goat? The goat, the, the greatest of all time. Yeah, is anybody familiar with that? Well, think of this as the, the hot. The H, the H-O-A-T, the holiest of all time is what these angels are saying. This is the one. There's none who is more morally pure. There's none who is more upright. There is none who is more true than this. This is the holiest of holies. And their response, their response is praise. Isaiah sees this king The angels are flying around the throne, calling out, holy, holy, holy. The doorposts are shaking because of this king. And the proper response is worship. This is where worship starts. This is where the gospel starts. It does not start with us. It doesn't start with the question, what do I like? What do I prefer? What do I need? It starts by looking at the Lord. It starts by looking at the sovereign one, the one who is exalted and high, the one who is immense, the one who is indescribable, the one who is holy, 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 and our praise is directed toward him. But then that praise also, being in the presence of this king, leads us to confession. Verse 5, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Now, how many of you have taken the opportunity on a dark and clear night to gaze up uh, at the stars and just get kind of lost in the stars? Anybody like to do this? Yeah, yeah. What, what is the general feeling that you get uh, when you are doing this? How do you feel? You feel insignificant. Yeah, you feel small. You feel tiny. You are gazing up. You realize that you are gazing up at billions of stars, at a, uh, at a universe that, uh, whose expanse is, is billions of miles, un- unmeasurable miles. And you realize, oh, oh, who am I? It dwarfs you, makes you feel tiny and small and insignificant. Well, Isaiah is in the presence of the one who creates the stars, the one who creates the heavens and the earth. He is in the presence of the holy, holy, holy sovereign Lord. In his response, when he realizes, when he suddenly turns to himself, he remembers himself Isaiah is completely crushed. I am finished. I am undone. I am ruined. Being in front of the the most morally pure thing, essence, being, whatever, 
There is Isaiah's sin, his, his life, the way that he lives. It all becomes too clear for him and he can't take it. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah's response as he comes into the presence of God is praise, but then it leads him to confession. When we stand before the brilliance of God's purity, our sin and our stain is revealed. It's made manifest. And so an appropriate, a natural response is to confess. What we'll see is that this confession leads the way to God's grace. Excuse me. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What does Isaiah do? Isaiah cries out simply, Woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He doesn't beg God. He doesn't cry out to God, Lord, save me. He doesn't make a deal with God. He doesn't bargain with God. God comes to him. This is a deep picture of God's grace. Comes to Isaiah in his brokenness, in his despair, in his hopelessness. And he doesn't come to destroy Isaiah. He doesn't come to stand over Isaiah and leave Isaiah in this place of desperation. He doesn't even come to Isaiah and say, Hey, Isaiah, you do this and then I'll rescue you. Then I'll deliver you. No, he simply comes over with a burning coal. The seraph comes with the tongs, touches Isaiah's lips, and his sin is atoned for. His guilt is taken away. This is a picture of God's grace. This is a picture of God's salvation as it comes to us. It is undeserved. It is unmerited. It is unsought out. We are unable to do this. We are in a place of hopelessness and despair. And God, in his grace, comes to us. Salvation. And where does this salvation lead us? Verse 8 Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Well, it's not until verse 8 that we hear the Lord speaking in this passage. And when he does speak, it's, a, it's this invitation. Who, who am I going to send? Who is going to go for us? And Isaiah, having been through this experience of hearing, hearing the, the praise of the seraphim, seeing God highly exalted, recognizing his own sin, his own misery, his own need, he, having God's grace come to him, having the purifying fire of this coal touch him and atone for his sin, Isaiah now is in this place where he is bent on serving God. Send me. What else is an appropriate response for somebody that has received so much? What else is an appropriate response to somebody who is, who is ruined, somebody who is hopeless, somebody who is in despair over their own sin? To have them drawn up, 
to have them taken out of that despair, to be given life, to be given hope back. What is the appropriate response? This is response of gratitude, this response of service. Yes, Lord, send me. Grace isn't an end in itself. No, grace leads us to serve. And did you catch the flow? Did you catch the flow of this passage? How it starts with worship. It starts with recognizing who God is. It leads us to see ourselves in the light of God's holiness and to confess that we are not where God wants us to be. Compared to God's holiness, we have fallen way short. It leads to God speaking his grace over us, his salvation over us, and this in turn leads us to a a sending out, to a service. This is what we do every week. This is how our worship is structured and patterned. It is gospel-centered. You can call it a sin, salvation, service. You can call it guilt, grace, gratitude. But this is the flow. It's the gospel message. We tell it, and we tell it not just through the sermon. This is an explicit way of doing it. But we try to tell it through every element of our worship service that this, this gospel message is who we are as we tell it, as we retell it, as we present it, as we represent it, and as we relive it every Sunday. Now on this side, on this side of the Old Testament, we have a more complete understanding where we realize that this, that this God, this majestic God is the one who created us. That we were in fellowship with him, unhindered fellowship, but we turned away from him. We thought we could do things better. We thought that we deserved to be in this high and exalted position. And so we sinned and we were cast away from him. We were at enmity with God because of what we did. We had no way of getting back because we are a human creature that had fallen. We have no way of getting back to this level of divine relationship because of our uncleanness. We are unclean, but God in his grace and God in his mercy, he does what is necessary to get us back. What God does is he sends his son to us. He sends Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ is, he lives among us. He lives a perfect life. They take him to the cross. They nail him to the cross. They crucify him. Our sins are heaped on Jesus Christ. This is the way that we are atoned. This is the way that we are forgiven. This is the way that our guilt is removed because it is placed on another. It is placed on the Son of God himself. He is killed for our sins and he is raised from the dead on the third day so that he might have victory over death and victory over sin and so that might, that might become available to us. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is made effective in our lives. Salvation is made for us. And not only do we receive it by the power of the Holy Spirit, this powerful Holy Spirit empowers us, it moves us, it leads us to respond to his grace, to carry out this message, and to reveal this kingdom that God is bringing to this earth. This is the gospel message. This is what we do in worship. And one other thing that I would like to I would like for us to see is that worship always, always, always occurs in context. This is never an isolated event. This is never a situation that is removed from our lives. Worship always happens in the context of our lives. This is Isaiah's context, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died. 
in the year that King Uzziah died, and then he has this vision. Well, King Uzziah was a good king of Judah. He ruled for 52 years, and we are told in the book of Second Chronicles that he was a king who, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This was a good king. And for 52 years under King Uzziah, Judah experienced stability. They defeated their enemies. They were at a point of power, a place of power. But now King Uzziah is either dead or this is the year that he died. Not only that, there's a threat that's coming from the Assyrian army. So now there's this stability that was had. The king goes away and now there's this threat. There's, there's instability. There's fear. There's question. What are we going to do? Who are we going to serve? So into this context, the Lord gives Isaiah this vision. Of who? Of a king. Of a king who is high upon the throne. A king who is immense. A king who is holy. God is saying, here I am. Worship me. Don't worry that, that this king has, has gone to be with the ancestors. Worship me. I am the true king. I am the true exalted one. Look at me. See the way that you have been living. See how you've deviated from me. Turn to me. Confess what you've done. I am going to cleanse you. I am going to purify you. This is going to be my work for you. This is going to be my salvation for you. And we are going to go out and we are going to tell the world of the Lord's goodness. Worship is always in the context of what is going on in our lives. We bring our lives into worship and we take our lives back out of worship. We flow in and out of worship with our lives. So when we come from these places of brokenness at our home, when we come from the, the struggle, when we come from the, the grief and the pain of what's going on at work or what's going on at school, when we, when we take in uh, the fear of what's going on right now or what could happen in the future, we bring this into the context of worship. And we find our place in this gospel story as it's told and as it's retold. And we find our place here before the king who is in control of all things. We recognize him for who he is. We admit that we haven't done it right. We find God's grace that just pours over us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we are sent out to live for him in response to who he is and what he's done. We live for his kingdom. All for God's glory and the good of his people. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that your word instructs us. It instructs us and and how we are to bring ourselves to worship you. Lord, this is not about us. You graciously include us, but Lord, it starts with you. Lord, we ask that as we respond now, we ask that our response would be from our hearts and that we would know your love and that we would know your grace that pours over us in Jesus Christ. Amen.